of a of 2024, right? So let's let's hope that that's the case. Um, you know, sometimes when I hang out with the the teens or the or the guys in campus or or even some of the singles, sometimes I tell jokes and they're just looking at me like, what? What are you saying? Right? And so I know that I tell dad jokes sometimes. So I have a list of New Year's dad jokes. <laughs> right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to d- deliver a couple dad jokes. My wife said bear with me. Um, so let me see here. Which one am I going to go with first? What, what, is, what is a New Year's resolution? Anybody? What's a New Year's resolution? Come on. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Well, that's better than my answer. My answer is uh, something that goes in one ear and out the other. Usually that's, that's my resolution. You know? But anyway, um, and so, uh, so here's something else for the kids, right? I appreciate you, you answering. That was very good, and that was pretty much the right answer. Um, what's a cow's favorite holiday? So I heard it. Go ahead, go ahead, say it again. Moo Year's Eve, yes! Come on, she has all the answers today. Very good, very good. Um, let's see, let's see. Um, what do farmers grow on January 1st? New Year's hay! All right, all right, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's go into God's word, amen? the best thing to do so that I don't embarrass myself anymore to those who are visiting with us for the first time. Look, I am I am not normally like this. I think I tell better jokes. So just to let you know, you can come back and hear better jokes in God's word another time. But um, so a few weeks ago, Tom, uh, Tom did a fantastic job in kicking off our series on heaven. Um, really appreciate what he talked about, uh, you know, and I feel like we've we've taken long enough of a break from the series and wanted to go ahead and continue today. I think that was about what three weeks ago yeah. that that he did that message on on um, on heaven, and he talked about the bookends of scripture, Genesis, Revelation, and touching briefly on the Garden of Eden, as well as touching on uh, the the uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, he looked at John and you know the aged apostle and the exile of uh, Patmos, um, exile on the island of Patmos. And he also looked at and talked briefly about the new heaven and the new earth, listing similarities of Eden and the New Jerusalem. And so today, what we're going to do today in this second lesson in the series, I'm going to take us through the, the history of God's desire to join us on earth. Amen. His desire to dwell with us. And I'm going to utilize 
uh, Courtney Bailey's presentation from Orlando entitled Digging Deeper. Those of you who went to Orlando, the conference that we had um, in 2022, probably um, participated in that class. But um, it's a long journey encompassing the entire 66 books of the Bible. We're not going to go through 66 books of the Bible today. Um, we're going to touch on uh, a cert certain areas, and my prayer is that I can deliver it as accurately and uh, with clarity. And so we're going to attempt this in two parts. Part one, we're going to look at from Eden to Israel. You know, digging deeper into scripture was prepared originally to help mature disciples as they mature in Christ to be able to dig deeper into God's word, right? To support their faith. And I think I'm beginning to already experience that as I get older as a disciple, right? as older get older as a Christian, it's very easy for us to begin to lose faith. The longer we're Christians, you know, we, we start off fantastic. And as we get older as Christians, we start to waver in our faith a little bit and feel like we're just hanging on. To even become cynical and, and even bitter about some of the twists and turns that life takes. Sometimes we may feel like this is not how we imagined Christianity to be. And God is not changing some of the things that we would like to see change about our lives. And I think one of the things that is very important for us to make to, to is, is for us is to make make it to the end is to grow in our knowledge of God. Yeah by going deeper in his word. And so I believe that is God's intention for us, to grow in our faith as a result of getting to know him better and getting to know his word better. And so I want to start out by saying that the purpose of digging deeper into scripture is not to know more Bible, not to know more verses in the Bible, not to memorize more verses in the Bible, but it's to know God. That is our ultimate goal, is to know God. God gave us his word as a window through which he reveals himself. But if we're not careful, what can happen is that we can get more focused, oops, excuse me a second. We can get more focused on, I just lost my place. We can get more focused, if we're not careful, on the window, and we don't see what we need to see through that window, if that makes sense. We're not able to see what God is trying to reveal to us through the window. It's like just looking, it's like staring at this window at home, and you're looking at the, you know, the window pane, but you're not seeing what is through it. You're not experiencing what is through that window. We see God through his word. 
when we sit down to read God's word, what we, what we should have in front, at the forefront of our minds, is that we're trying to see God. Not that we're trying to just learn scripture or learn scripture in order to, to pass it on to somebody else, but we're trying to see God. We're trying to understand who he is. But one thing I think that's very important for us as we read God's word is to try to see him, is to understand what kind of window he has. And so God has chosen to reveal himself to us in scripture by using stories. Even though the Bible is made up of different books, even though it's made up of different verses and different genres of writing, whether it be psalms or, or different things like that or letters, it holds together as a unified story. And the Bible is not a book of do's and don'ts or rules and regulations. What it is, is a story that God intends for us to read and to discover something about him. Now, we all know the basic story. We all know that God desires to dwell with and bless humanity. Humanity, humanity rebels and are separated from God and his blessings. And then God redeems humanity. Right? That's the goal, that he would redeem humanity and restore what is lost. That is the story of the Bible. So my goal today is not to tell you the Bible story, but my goal is to help you to understand that as we read the individual parts of the Bible, we've got to keep our eye on the story because God puts it together as a story. And that story is first. That story is first that God desires to dwell with and bless man. Amen. That's the major thing I want us to think about through this through this uh, this this lesson is that God wants to bless and be with you. He wants to dwell with humanity. His desire is to be with us. And so with that desire, God created us and, and this entire world out of his love for us and his desire to be with us. But we know what happens in the story. Like I said, mankind rebels. Because of our sin, we get separated from God and his blessings. But God is persistent in his desire to do what? Redeem us. Redeem humanity who is lost. And though we do read the Bible as books and verses or study different topics, that's good. And it serves a very valuable, valuable purpose in our lives. But we must at the same time read it as a unified whole, seeking to understand what God is seeking to show us about himself from the whole story. And so today I'm going to start... And I'm going to try, actually, to take you through different snapshots of the story. Not the entire scripture, like I said. To demonstrate how we can see God more by reading the whole story. By tracing just one element of the story. And that one element is God dwelling with man. And some related recurring elements 
which appear along the way. So we're going to track all the way from Eden through the desert to Israel to the exile in, in uh, Babylon. And then we'll come to the return and the building of the second temple. Then to Jesus and the church and end in the new Jerusalem. This is going to be, we're going to do this in two parts. One this week and, and the other next week. And so this journey is going to show you how to deepen your Bible study and knowledge of God by reading the Bible in this way as a unified story as we also see heaven revealed in the scripture. So let's begin with Genesis 1 with Eden. In Genesis 1, starting in verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, and it was empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In Genesis 1, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. And what God does is he separates the waters into the waters above and the waters below. And above the waters... Above the waters above is the dwelling place of God. That is heaven. And down below, God separates the earth, the land, from the waters below. And he creates a space, right? He creates a space where man can live. And this earth is this space for man to live. It's a space for man to reside, for man to dwell. And God's space is in heaven. And man's space is on earth. And God desires to dwell with man. So what does he do? He creates a very special place in the Garden of Eden. Where heaven, God's realm, and earth can meet. It is, as it were, a portal between earth and heaven. It's an outpost of heaven here on earth, where God is able to dwell with man. How amazing is that, that God would create that so that he can be with us, this intersection of heaven and earth, so he can be with us. And so we see in Genesis 2 this very personal picture of God where in Genesis 2 God gets personal with man unlike we have in Genesis 1 where God speaks things into being in Genesis 2 God gets personal by getting his hands dirty and he builds man out of dirt on the earth and he breathes into man the spirit that gives man life and then what does he do? He takes man and he carries all the animals to Adam and he has him name them. And then notices that Adam is lonely. And so he puts him to sleep and he takes something from his side and he makes a woman. 
and he brings her to Adam, and Adam says, Oh, my. Right? And it's very clear from this picture that God is delighting in Adam. He loves him. He cares for his needs. And he wants Adam to delight in his relationship with him as well. So God really creates for Adam a space where he can cohabit with God and live with God. And it's called the Garden of Eden. And that word Eden in Hebrew means delights. It's a garden of delight, a place of delight, where it really is truly a paradise. But it's a paradise until man sins. And God has put him out of this garden. And he guards a way back in with these cherubim that face east. Now hold in your mind some key features of this garden in Eden that we lose. Because these are going to feature as we track through the story. So first, what do we have? We have this paradise, this garden, which is a paradise. And, and in this garden, paradise, there is this tree of life that man has got to be separated from because he has sinned. And this tree of life is what gives man the ability to dwell with God for all time. And it really is a tree, right? That gives eternal life. Then there is this river that runs through the garden. Then most important in this garden is the very presence of God. And man has unhindered access to the very presence of God. He is not hindered at all. He can approach God in this place. And God dwells with man. And this is therefore a meeting place between God's realm, heaven, and earth. Now another very important note is that when God puts man out of the garden, he puts these cherubim to guard the way back in. And the cherubim are not described in Genesis 1. But from Ezekiel, we learn that these are not the babies that we see on postcards, right? With the wings. These are creatures that have the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, the face of a man, and the face of an ox. These kinds of creatures feature in the arts the sculpture of ancient Near East, Israel's neighbors, and they're going to be used as guards to guard access to throne rooms and to temples. So the cherubim really are functioning as guards to God's throne. And in a sense, even that place that man is locked out of 
represented a place where man could have audience with God. It represented also a temple where God dwelt, where God lived. And now man has been excluded from this space that he had previously had unhindered access to the very presence of God. Now let's move forward to the story of Abraham. You know what happens before we get to Abraham? Things get so bad that God destroys the earth with a flood in an effort to recreate, if you will. And he saves Noah, but there's sin in Noah's family as well. There's a Tower of Babel, and God gets to to the point that he decides he's going to start all over again and seek to create new people through this man called Abraham, Father Abraham. And he hopes to representatively save the rest of the world by first creating this people who become God's people, the Israelites. And he hopes to bring them into, a, into a, a, a special place. He promises Abraham the land of Israel. You guys remember that, right? He promises them the land of Israel. And this, this promised land of Israel becomes then a new garden of Eden. This new place where heaven and earth will meet. And you, you can look, look at uh, Genesis 28 where, where we have Jacob, one of the descendants of Abraham's, have Abraham having this vision where there's a gateway to heaven right there at, Bab- at Bethel, the house of God, which, which connects heaven with earth. You see the trend here. But God not only wants to give them this promised land, which is a new garden of Eden, God wants to dwell with them so that they will have his presence in this special place called Israel. So we jump forward now, about 430 years. And after 430 years, Abraham's descendants are in Egypt. And God wants to take them back to the promised land, Israel, and they they multiply to the point that they're a large portion of Egypt's nation. And God decides that he's going to lead them from Egypt into the promised land. He decides to show them his presence by these visible manifestations in cloud and fire. And these are called theophanies. A theophany is quite simply a visible manifestation of God's presence. And what God does is he leads them. He leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. What does he do? He stays with them in their presence. God's purpose in giving them this visible sign is to say to them, I am with you. 
am with you in your presence. Regardless of what you do, I am with you. And the idea of having the fire by night and the cloud by day is, is that God did physically manif manifest himself in this way day and night. But the idea of day and night is kind of like we talk about rich and poor. It's kind of how we say to the east and to the west. What are we doing? We're covering, we're talking about everything in between. And so whether it be day or whether it be night, God is with you throughout all of that and the in-between. And God is saying to the Israelites and, and through them, but through them to us that he is with us all the time. He is with us when it's dark. He is with us when it's bright. He is with us in good times and he is with us in our bad times. God is with us. Even when it doesn't feel like he is, he wants us to know by this visible manifestation that he is always with us and that he is taking us somewhere. That this is not the place that we rest and stay. He is taking us somewhere and he is always with us despite what we think we may be going for. So now we're going to move on to the desert. And even when we're not sure how it's all going to go work out, God wants us to know that he is with us. But God not only wants to journey with the people, he wants to dwell with the people. And so he has them make this tabernacle, which is essentially a tent. And he has them build one so that he can dwell with them. In Exodus 25, verse 8, it says then, this is what he says to Moses to tell the people, and have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will do what? Dwell among them. I want you to feel these words. He says he wants a sanctuary. Why? His desire is to dwell. His desire is to live with them. He wants to be right in their midst among them. And he says in Exodus 9, starting in verse 4, 44, it says, So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt. So what? Who brought them out of Egypt, so what? So that I can dwell among them. That was his purpose. His whole idea. Yes, they were suffering in Egypt. They were going through so many things in Egypt for such a long time. But he says, I want to rescue them so I can live with them. I am the Lord, their God. So God not only wants to travel with the people, he wants to dwell with the people. And I want you to think about the creator God, the king of the universe, 
who created all things, the God whom, as Solomon says, the entire heaven cannot hold. And he's humbling himself to come down to do what? Dwell in a tent. Because he is prepared to inconvenience himself just because it allows him to dwell with the people. Come on. I want you to sense the greatness of God's desire to dwell. That he would travel with his people in a tent. That's our God. And when they finally made the tabernacle, we're told that the presence of God enters into it. The cloud, remember the cloud is one of the theophanies that speak of the presence of God. And we're told in Exodus 40, 34 through 35, then the cloud covered the tent of me. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. <clears throat> so he could be with them. Again, hear these words, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I think it speaks of God's desire to enter into this space where he can once more commune with his people. Amen. So as we see it tracking from Eden, him wanting to be with his people, and again and again, he makes a space that he can be with them. And so in the tabernacle, we have another space in which heaven meets earth. And it is symbolic of the Garden of Eden. It represents the lost paradise which God is trying to recover and create for these people in Israel. Now one of the features of the tabernacle was the use of the cherubim that we talked about a moment ago. And you can see if you, if you can see on this uh, photo that if you look at the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, as well as from the top of the Ark of the Covenant, you'll see that they have the cherubim depicted there based on God's instructions. And this imagery is used to depict the fact that in the most holy place, what we have is even lost. In other words, the cherubim on that curtain represents the cherubim that faces face east, that guard the way back into the very unhindered access to the presence of God. And so what we have in the tabernacle is a depiction of the loss of paradise because of man's sin. On one hand, it shows us that God wants to dwell with us. But on the other hand, it shows the fact that because of our sin, we no longer have the unhindered access 
to the very presence of God. And we can see this from the way that the tabernacle is designed. And so I want you to notice that the most holy place, the holy place, and indeed the courtyard of the tabernacle, they all face east. And what's east? East is the direction in which the cherubim face Adam and Eve out from coming back into the very presence of God. And when Cain kills his brother Abel and he flees, where does he go? He goes east. And so east is the direction away from this unhindered access that we had originally had with God. And as you move more in towards the most holy place, access to the presence of God gets more and more restricted. So Gentiles could not enter into that outer courtyard, but Israelites could. But only priests could enter in the, into the holy place. And only the high priests, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was able to enter into the most holy place after the necessary sacrifices and really at risk of death because of sin. And so the whole structure is intended to, to show us that, yes, God is dwelling again with man, but we have lost the unhindered access to the very presence of God as a result of our sin. And so now we move finally for today to Israel, Solomon's temple. You know, when we fast forward to Solomon's temple, the Israelites get into the promised land and they're all living in houses. And their king, David, he's got his own palace, right? And he's got a sensitive heart and David thinks of him thinks to himself no this is not right that I should live in a palace and the presence and the presence of God should be in a tent so David says I want to build a house for God and God says says through the prophet Nathan not that one but the prophet Nathan no 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 you need to understand. Let me help you understand how this works. You can't build a house for me. I've never asked anyone to build a house for me. And so as your son Solomon will say, as we read in 1 Kings, not even the highest heavens can in fact house me. And so you're not in a position to build a house for me. The way this works is I will build a house for you. He's talking about the dynasty that, would, that he would make through David's line. And then God says to David, your son will build a house for me. 
And maybe David was mistaken, and sometimes we are mistaken, in thinking that the son who was to build the house is Solomon. But the son who would build a house for David is not, in fact, Solomon. Because the son who would build a house, according to God's word, was a son whose reign would last forever. And we know that Solomon's dynasty did not last forever. And so you see, the true son who was to come, who would build the house of God, is Jesus. And so Solomon was only a foreshadowing of Jesus. But his temple that he built can be looked at because it also has some symbolic symbols which point to the fact that in this structure, it represented the loss of our unhindered access that God wanted us to enjoy in the Garden of Eden. Why? Well, first of all, you'll notice that one of the things that Solomon had in the temple <coughs> on the walls, he had all these trees. And I think that's because it was intended to depict the fact that he was recreating the Garden of Eden. The temple represented the lost Garden of Eden. And in addition to the trees in Solomon's temple, we have cherubim as well, which again speaks to this hindrance of our access to God, lost as we were put out of the Garden of Eden. Well, what happens when Solomon finishes building the temple? 1 Kings 8, verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God amazingly decides to humble himself. And in the form of a cloud depicting his presence as with the tabernacle, to enter into the most holy place of this temple again. Now remember, he said, I don't need a house. But when it was built and Solomon prayed to him, he says, I've heard your prayer. And God humbles himself and goes into the structure that they have built. Again, in the temple, we have another space. Another space where heaven again meets earth. The symbol, this, this symbolism of the Garden of Eden, but, but of the restricted, of the restriction that we face in our relationship with God because of sin. So what we're going to do is next week, we're going to jump forward to Ezekiel and the exile in Babylon. And so we're going to stop here for today, but I hope you're, you're, you're seeing the trend of, of the heaven, that space meeting our space and God wanting that to happen. So he's creating these different these different times where that can happen. 
Because why? He wants to dwell with us. He wants to be with us. And what we're going to see next week is by the time we get to the new Jerusalem, that is God with his people for eternity again. And we're going to see all the things that we saw in in the Garden of Eden show up again in the new Jerusalem. But you know what? The one thing is that we're going to learn next week that is not there that was in the Garden of Eden. The one thing that is not in the new Jerusalem is the cherub. Because there's unhindered access again. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer, God. We're just so grateful for what you do and have done to allow us to dwell with you, for you to dwell with us. God, you've put yourselves put yourself in many positions that we probably wouldn't put ourselves in so that you can be with us. Father, you sent your son to be with us. Father, I pray that throughout this week we will think and consider of all all the things you've done so that you can be with your children, so that you can be with your creation. Let us read the Bible in this way. Help us to read the Bible with that at the forefront of our hearts and our minds. Father, we thank you for your son. That sacrifice of you sending him, him being born in humble circumstances, living amongst us, dying amongst us, being buried amongst us, and resurrected amongst us. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for how you love us, though we don't deserve it. Pray these things in your son's name.
Awesome. Let's give a round of applause for JD. Yeah. Bringing to mind that God, from the very beginning, just wanted to dwell with us and be with us. And he wants us to have unhindered access to him. Uh, it's really moving. It's really moving. Um, I want to read a scripture and then pray for contribution. So the scripture is Psalms number 50, verse 8. It says, I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. And call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. God, thank you so much. Everything 